This episode is brought to you by Odd Mo's Pizza in Canby. Handmade awesome pizza plus craft beer, wine, and cider delivered. Order today at 503-263-8444 or visit them online at oddmoes.com. This episode is also brought to you by Canby Foursquare Church. Since 1978, a place to grow, connect, and serve. Sunday services on campus and online at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Learn more at canbyfoursquare.com. Welcome to Now Hear This Canby, your source for news. The threat of a possible teacher strike was avoided this week. There's a new irresistibly cute creature winning over fans, and its name is Scootaloo. Sports? It's like Lucy in the football. You want to kick a field goal, but they take it away from you. We had to learn how to win. Goal can't be in the last second of the game! And interesting conversations. Because I'm one of the strongest girls ever, and I know that for a fact. (laughs) I just really enjoy writing gossip as if I was a bear. (laughs) With an old maid daughter that makes the best moonshine in the coast. (laughs) If it would have hit me in the face, I think I would have died. I really do. I guarantee you would have died, man. Are you kidding me? Welcome to Now Hear This Can Be Podcast. I'm Tyler Clawson, and this is what's happening this week in our community. A Canby man was killed in a two-vehicle motorcycle versus SUV crash in the St. John's neighborhood of North Portland last week, police say. According to the police bureau, Seth Thomas Roberts, 21, of Canby, was riding a blue 2005 Suzuki motorcycle when he struck the passenger side of a black 2018 Jeep Grand Cherokee near the intersection of North Marine Drive and North Bybee Lake Road. Officers arrived at the scene at approximately 11.37 p.m. Saturday to find Roberts dead. The driver and the passenger in the SUV, whom police did not identify, were evaluated but not seriously injured. The crash occurred while Portland Police Bureau officers were investigating a street takeover at the Interstate 5 interchange three miles away, which blocked all traffic, forcing the ambulance to go long way around on North Columbia Boulevard past Kelly Point Park and approach from the west. Street takeovers are an activity related to street racing in which a coordinated group of drivers and spectators illegally block off streets and intersections to speed or perform stunts like drifting, donuts, and ghost riding. Both Roberts and the driver in the SUV were involved in the organized street racing and takeover events happening in the city that night. Portland police reported speed is believed to have been a contributing factor in the fatal crash. The crash was the 37th traffic-related fatality of the year in Portland and the second in nearly five hours. During the crash investigation, police say a separate motorcyclist sped through the scene, nearly hitting two officers. An officer attempted to stop the motorcyclist afterwards, but the driver eluded police for nearly an hour, allegedly speeding, running red lights, and driving on sidewalks and through parks and walking trails. The rider, later identified as 21-year-old Ethan K. Krebs of Gresham, was ultimately stopped and arrested near the intersection of Southeast Woodland Drive and Southeast Eagle Lane. 
Krebs was booked into Multnomah County Jail on 17 charges, including 10 counts of reckless endangerment, two counts each of menacing and interfering with police officer, and a single count of reckless driving, attempt to elude by vehicle, and assault on a public safety officer. Detectives with the Clackamas County Sheriff's Office are continuing their homicide investigation after a woman's body was found on a vacant property near Wilsonville last week. According to a police officer or worker at a vacant property in the 26,000 block of Southwest Stafford Road, northeast of Wilsonville, discovered the woman shortly before noon Monday and called the Clackamas County Sheriff's Office. Following family notifications, the victim was identified as Clarissa Hammond Sweet, 43, of Salem. An autopsy determined that she died of homicidal violence, the Sheriff's Office said, but has not released further details about her cause of death. The property has a home on it, but it was vacant and in the process of being sold at the time of discovery, police said. Hammond Sweet's body was found on the lot and not inside the house. No arrests have been made and the investigation is ongoing. Detectives have asked anyone with information regarding the victim or the circumstances surrounding her death to contact the sheriff's office by phone at 503-723-4949 or by using the online email form. An Oregon City man was arrested this week after police said they found him passed out in his car on Southeast McLaughlin Boulevard with fentanyl and multiple guns in his possession. Milwaukee police said that they were called to check on the welfare of a man who appeared to be passed out in his vehicle on the 12,200 block of Southeast McLaughlin at about 2.15 p.m. Wednesday. They arrived on the scene they indeed found one Riker Dunn man, 30, of Oregon City, passed out in the driver's seat of a running car that was parked nose into a parking spot. Police say they observed drug paraphernalia consistent with fentanyl use and observed on man's person and in the vehicle. Authorities said that they pinned the car in place by parking a patrol car behind the rear bumper of man's car, which is a tactic commonly used to secure a vehicle with a driver who is potentially intoxicated or under the influence. Officers attempted to make contact with man who woke up and tried to reverse out of the spot but was unable to move. 
Mann allegedly resisted arrest when officers tried to take him into custody and they noticed he was armed with a knife. A 22 caliber revolver and 40 caliber pistol, both loaded, were also found in the car following a subsequent search. Mann was eventually detained with the use of handcuffs and a taser. In further search of the vehicle, officers also reportedly uncovered a bag of suspected fentanyl pills, a digital scale, and other drug-related paraphernalia. Mann was transported to a local hospital after reporting a medical condition and later lodged at Clackamas County Jail on warrants for from Clackamas and Clatskop counties, along with new charges of possession of controlled substance, interfering with peace officer, and two counts of felon in possession of a firearm. Mann has a long history of felony and misdemeanor convictions, most of them drug-related. Dating back to 2011 in Clackamas, Multnomah, Marion, and Lincoln counties, according to online court records. Clackamas County Commissioners and other officials are inviting residents to attend and learn about wildfire prevention and preparation in the board's first virtual town hall event in 2023. Three years after much of southern, eastern, and central Clackamas County was ravaged by major wildfires, county officials say they understand the public may be wondering where preparedness efforts stand. What, if anything, has changed since 2020 and what residents can do to help? Guests will include the full board of county commissioners, the interim director of Clackamas County Disaster Management, and local fire officials. Questions and comments from residents are encouraged during the event. Residents are strongly encouraged to send questions and comments ahead of time by email to clackconews at clackamas.us with the subject line, Wildfire Town Hall. Clackamas County Chair Tootie Smith reserves the right to stop comments that are out of order or off topic. Questions may also be shortened for time. The event will be held from 6 to 7.30 p.m. Tuesday, August 1st via Zoom. For the link, find this story on our website at canbefirst.com. Just two years after opening their original 950-square-foot location in downtown Canby, Oregon Texas Line, or OTL, Community Fitness has moved up North 1st Street to a much larger location. Owners Brandon and Jessica Jackson and their three children Garrison 8, Grayson 6, and Garrick 2 
celebrated the occasion with a ribbon cutting hosted by the Canby Area Chamber Thursday afternoon. Growth has been something of a constant for OTL Fitness ever since the Jacksons first dipped their toe into the world of gym management, inviting a few friends and neighbors to their garage-based home gym for workouts. With the COVID-19 pandemic at its height, and many experiencing quarantine cabin fever and feeling the need to get the blood pumping, this informal club soon swelled to more than 30 people and the Jacksons started looking for a new location. It took some heavy lifting, but in July of 2021, they opened in the former home of Camby Music on Northwest First Avenue. But before long, they had gotten swole again and needed to find a larger space. This time, they would not have to go far, relocating two doors down to the 2,200 square foot space, most recently occupied by Ultimate Team Spirit, which closed its doors earlier this summer. With the help of members, the Jacksons completely renovated the former retail and t-shirt printing production space at 248 Northwest First. OTL Fitness is a level method gym offering functional fitness classes for adults and kids as well as classes for women needing help with core and pelvic floor health. They offer small class sizes and workout tailored to clients current level of fitness. To celebrate their move OTL is offering free classes for a limited time when you join this month. For more information visit otlcommunityfitness.com. Oh, yeah, I did it. I finally did it. I did the one-minute death run on Fortnite. Wow, Tyler, that was awesome. And it only took you 38 hours to do that. What was that? Nothing. Hey, have you ever thought about entering a tournament for prizes or scholarships? Yeah, but, I mean, there's entry fees and stuff, right? Nope. DirectLink, our local internet provider, has just announced a partnership with Fiber Gaming Network to offer free entry for their active broadband subscribers into national online tournaments. Wow, that sounds pretty sweet. So how, how does it work? Dude, it could not be easier. They have lots of different events each week for gamers of all skill levels. Folks can join the Fiber Gaming Network Discord server and connect with other players to form parties, play together, learn tips and tricks, and more. It's moderated to foster a safe and inclusive environment for all, too. Plus, I even heard that Fiber Gaming Network is working with recruiters from college esports programs to find talented new players. There are actually a ton of college scholarships available for competitive gamers now. Oh, so they're, they have like a community aspect to it, too. That's cool. But... There has to be some catch. Monthly charges, service fees, something. Nope. All DirectLink members on Fiber can participate for free. All you have to do is visit directlink.coop/fgn to learn more. Then click the button at the bottom to sign up with Fiber Gaming Network. I've definitely got to check this out. Wow, they have like the best games. Rocket League, Fortnite, Madden NFL 23, NBA 2K23. Dude, Super Smash Brothers, Mario Kart, Overwatch. Oh my right? Gosh. They even host trivia nights too. And you don't even need a game console to play that. You just join right from your connected device, phone, tablet, or computer. Check out these categories. Taylor Swift, Nintendo, Spider-Man, The Office. Oh, <laughs> sweet. We are so doing trivia, and we're going to destroy everyone. No kidding. I mean, you're the biggest Swifty I know. Taylor Swift for life. 
Visit directlink.coop FGN to learn more and sign up for Fiber Gaming Network events today. Louis Bozell was born December 11, 1925, in Portland, but he grew up on a farm in Albany. He attended but didn't graduate Albany High School. Like many young men of the day, he decided to join the service after the United States was bombed at Pearl Harbor. Although, to hear him tell it, that wasn't the only reason. They had cows and... And that was one thing when I went in the service. One of the reasons I probably went in the service was I was tired of milking cows by hand. <laughs> I thought, well, that's the end of that. And well, yeah. of course, then Dad got out of the. Bozell went through basic training at Farragut Naval Training Station in Idaho. After that, he was put on a ship bound for the other side of the world. We went to an area where there were a bunch of ships in the transport ship, and then uh, I was scheduled to be on the JR, and so uh, when when they when they called out my name, I got on the barge and went to the right to the ship, and then I was on the ship from then on. But well, I. I can say one thing. <laughs> it was a squadron commandership for uh, Squad Dog 25, which was two divisions. And. Uh, oh. There's a book written about it. Huh? Yeah. Okay. And. Uh, Can you t- take yeah, pictures with your phone? I was going to write it down. We had the Commodore and everything sure. with us. I'm going to write it down, too. So, uh, you had the Commodore? Yeah, on our the, ship. Because we were the command ship. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. So, if anything was going on, we were in it. Right. What was... Uh, and, and he and our skipper were bloodthirsty anyway, so... Is that right? <laughs> yeah, they wanted everything. They want to get the job done. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. They immediately went to combat. They had been in combat before, and they immediately went back to combat. So, what do you remember from that? Like, uh, how did you get to combat? You know, did they drive you on a amphibious thing? Or did they take you in jeeps? I was on a destroyer. You didn't get off from it. Oh, you didn't get off the destroyer? No. Okay. I was a gunner on a destroyer. A gunner. I, worked, I was with the gunner's mates and I did other things when we weren't in combat. This might sound weird, but there must have been some sort of comfort being on the ship the whole time instead of out, you know, patrolling the beaches on foot. Have never been on the beach, wouldn't know. Wouldn't know what the difference would be. Uh, 
Yeah, if there weren't any airplanes in the sky, it was a comfortable thing. <laughs> or Japanese ships, I mean. Bozell participated in many battles during the course of his military career. We asked if he felt a fear or panic during those times. We were so busy, you didn't have time to worry about how, how bad it was. So is there anything uh, anything you can share with me, like memories of some of the combat that you were in? No, I don't like to do that. Right. I like to sleep at night. Yeah, I understand that. So, but it's it's still something to this day that... You can't, you never forget it. Right. Bozell's ship was among those deployed to Iwo Jima, which would become the site of one of the bloodiest battles of World War II, and what's now considered a turning point in favor of the Allied forces. At the time, though, the name did not carry the infamy that it now does. Iwo Jima was just just, just a small one as far as we were concerned. Right. I mean, we went to everything else in the South Pacific. I mean, we were never a major battle in the South Pacific. You say there was never a major no, battle? I say major. we were in oh. every major battle. Right. What we did, what, basically what we did when we were working the landings, we would go in and so- soften up the beach. Then we would go out and come back with the troops and support them until they were secure. And what does softening up the beach mean? Blowing up everything that looks like that they might have to shoot at you with. And they call that softening up the beach? Yeah. That's interesting. Near the end of the war, Bozell's ship was deployed to Japan, where he would witness the bombing of Hiroshima. When we got, when, when we were told that we were going to that, the thing that they told us, they told us we were expendable when we went in there. And we came out with every, everything was fine. There was, I think there was five or six, five destroyers that went in. Five destroyers went that in, went in? Went in a fjord 30, 30 miles in and shot up everything that looked like danger. Anything that moved? Huh? Just, just destroying everything. Right. And that's what that was. And then that was the last battle we were in. We didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, toward the last of the war, <clears throat> after after the Iwo and the island, and even before that, we used to be in the Pacific and we'd count the B-29s going over bombing Japan and then we'd count them coming back to see if they all come back just something to do to occupy your mind but uh, when when the A-bomb went off we never saw that aircraft go over. And it was so high up, right? 
Well, it probably wasn't probably wasn't in the same place that we were. Oh, okay. And uh, of course, it didn't come back. It went on and landed in in Russia, I think. So, but we could see the smoke and stuff from it. And it was always. Do you remember about how many miles away you were? No, I don't. No way, no way. It was close enough that you could see the cloud, though. Huh? Close enough you could see the cloud. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, uh, well, you could see that cloud probably for miles. Sure. I mean, you may be 30 miles at sea and still see it. Yeah, that was my guess, was like 30 miles away or so. Yeah, well, possibly or more, yeah. When they were ready to sign the treaty, we went into Tokyo Harbor and sat in the harbor with the engines running. We didn't shut them off. And watched the signing of the peace on the Missouri. And as soon as that was done, we left. And we went down to some of the other islands and picked up a bunch of guys and headed home. What were you watching on? Uh, you said you watched the signing of the treaty. Uh, were you watching that in person? Or was it on like a little... Oh, they were on the deck of the ship and we were sitting out there in the water. Uh, so you literally yeah. watched it? Yeah. Yeah. So what was the... Do you, do you recall what it felt like once you knew that it was had been signed and it was official? Oh, I... Hey, we were fifty yards from the from the other ship. Well, maybe not that far, but we were quite a ways away. We could see that that's what they were doing. That's all we, and we were told what they were doing, mm-hmm. and that's all. So you know, did everyone? Did a big cheer go up? You know, did everybody cheer or anything like that? Everybody's too scared to do anything like that. <laughs> Still at that point. Yeah. Once the treaty was signed that you were maybe 50 yards from. Yeah. Um, well, maybe maybe closer. I don't know. I you mean, were close enough that you could... We were in the harbor. Right. We were in Tokyo Harbor. Um, so you, you don't recall if there was a big cheer that went up? I don't think there was. I don't think so. So then how long was it until you guys started to go back home after that? Soon as we left the left the harbor, like that day, yeah. And you went to Pearl Harbor after that. No, I went. We went to two or three small islands south of Japan, uh-huh. I- Iwo was one of them, and picked up guys that were going back. So we had a crew, a load of ship of guys that we didn't have room for really. But. Right. And how happy were they to see you guys? <laughs> oh, they were glad to get on something to head at home. Yeah. 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 They, they weren't letting you out, so... Right. I mean, it doesn't make any difference. You, you, deal the war it. was over. It was... <laughs> if you say, was well, there's anything was comforting, then we were comforted. Right. No matter what they did. So, uh... So when you got to Boston, uh... What did you guys do when you got off the ship? Oh, there was a lot of partying going on. Yeah. yeah. Like, what do you remember from that? Like the, I'm sure you guys had a lot of fun that week. 
or however long you've been well, there. Uh, I don't think we were there probably four or five days, maybe. Yeah. And uh, there were a lot of gals there, and a lot of the gals were hugging the sailors. And I was going to ask you: Do you remember the first girl you kissed yeah, after so getting that, off the boat? That was that was the big thing that went on, and it was mm-hmm. enjoyable. I mean. <clears throat> So then, uh, from Boston, how long were you in Boston then? Three or four days, maybe five days, I don't know. And then did you fly back west? No, no. You took the ship all the way back? We we took the ship back to Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, okay. On the way back, we went into New York Harbor and went around the Statue of Liberty. Uh uh, How did that feel? Well, it was... Enjoyable, really, yeah, to see that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we went to Charleston and they decommissioned the ship there. And then all of us reservists retired out. And you could retire in Charleston or you could go have the military haul you all over the country and tell it wherever they wanted to put you. But I retired there because uh, my sister wanted to come out and come home with me, which she did. And then where did you go from there? Oh. Home, back to here, to Albany? Yeah, I bought an old, an old flipper, and Sis and I drove home. How many days did that take you? Oh, I don't know. Not very long, I don't think. I mean, you know, we, there was we, before we, the freeways were built, right? Oh, yeah, but yeah. we were both both driving, so, and we had another gal that lived in Portland going with us, so... There's three. So, so we sleep while you're riding, and we just drove through, and I don't know how long it took. So. When you got back, did you end up milking cows for no. a little while? No. No. <clears throat> Dad was a World War One vet. Where did he fight? Uh, Argonne Forest. Oh, okay. And he, uh, I asked him, I said, Dad, what do I do now when I get back? I mean, I was just a nervous wreck, if you want to put it that way. I know what you mean. And uh, he said, son, the best thing for you to do is find all the work you can do. Find all you can do, just take jobs. So I took a job at the plywood mill graveyard had a shotgun injury that blew half my chest apart. And How did that happen? I just had a gun down and went off. And Were you uh, out hunting? Huh? Were you hunting? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so that got me out of the trucking business for a while. I couldn't do it, and I finally had to sell everything out and get out of it. And then when I went back back to work, I went to work for the United States Bureau of Mines. Prior to that, I had got started studying powerhouses, uh-huh. uh, control systems of powerhouses. And uh, Bureau of Mines uh, were working for AEC, and, and I was in, involved in that, and they... Uh, had decided to 
transfer their business to a Chinese company to do it, and then all the employees were to be transferred to the Chinese company, and I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't go to the Chinese company to work for them. And uh, so I, uh, I'm, I'm healthy again, but I'm studying this powerhouse business stuff by going to, I went to, to a fellow I knew from BPA to get stuff to study what I was working on. Mm-hmm. And uh, while, while I was doing that, I uh, uh, I think, well, you, I have to do something to make a living. I wasn't living at home, so I was hauling logs with a dump with a for a log trucker. And uh, I took an exam and passed it with ninety-eight percent federal exam that took six hours or something like that. How come not a hundred percent? Not that smart, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just teasing. Anyway, I had the I I had the best test <clears throat> of anybody that took it, mm. so they hired me. So then I went to work for uh, the car engineers, and I worked for them until retirement. Tyler, did you know that the Australian lyrebird can mimic any sound that it hears, even chainsaws? No, that's uh, super interesting. Did you know that a baby puffin is called a puffling? Uh, or no. that baby sea otters can't swim, so their moms wrap them up in pieces of kelp until they learn how to paddle? Wait, do you know any trivia that isn't like animal related? Not really, but here's some stuff you may not know about the Wild Hair Saloon, where Camby goes to eat and have fun. Okay. The Wild Hair is one of Camby's longest running locally owned restaurants. Owners Joan and Darren Moden have been in business for 16 years. That's cool. Yeah, heck, you were just a baby back then. I, and, wait, what? And they love to give back. They've been members of the Camby Chamber for that long, and they donate over $20,000 to local sports, FFA programs, and civic organizations each year. Wow, I'm legitimately like caught off. That's cool. Yeah. They also support more than 30 jobs in the community through their award-winning staff, some of them as young as 18. Hey, that's older than you are. Uh, dude, I'm te- I'm 10 months younger than you. With, with the days getting longer and the weather getting warmer, the Canby Wild Hair's expansive outdoor patio is the place to be. Furry friends, welcome. Well, that sounds great. I'm going to go check them out just off of Highway 99E next to the Space Age in Canby at 1656 Beaver Creek Road in Oregon City or on their website at thewildhairsaloon.net. Well, friends, we're going to draw this episode of the Canby Now podcast towards a close with this episode of Canby Then. This time it's brought to you by Retro Revival, not your average antique shop. They're open daily and you can find them on the corner of Northwest 3rd and Grant Street in downtown Canby or connect with them through email at retrorevivaloc at gmail.com. 
They say all's fair in love and war, but that doesn't necessarily mean all's love in war and fair. Indeed, a war of words was fought in 1908 over control of the fledgling Clackamas County Fair, and Canby was the winner. The fair had started in Gladstone and was a smashing success, but enterprising folks in Canby thought they could do better, and they had just the spot in mind, a beautiful 40-acre plot on the east side of town on land once owned by Supreme Court Chief Justice Aaron E. Waite and still held by his descendants. Led by the Canby Development League, Chairman R.S. Coe, and 23 other league members, the town was ultimately successful in bringing the fair to Canby, where it would remain for the next 112 years, at least. A groundbreaking was held in late July 1918 to begin construction on the fairgrounds' buildings and a first-class racetrack, and it was a festive occasion. Local officials came out in droves to view the beautiful grounds and make speeches under a stand of drooping fir trees. The mayor of Canby, J.F. Mitz, had proclaimed the day a local holiday, and many downtown businesses closed their storefronts in honor of the momentous occasion. Canby's Silver Comet Band met visitors at the old train depot, which I guess back then would have been the new train depot, and whisked them through a grand processional to where the ceremonies would be taking place. Numerous delegates from surrounding communities were there to, quote, rustle on the sidelines and make all the noise as needed, as recorded by the Oregonian. Judge Grant Dimmick, whose later exploits would reveal him to be one of the most sinister rogues in the county's history, exhorted his listeners to do all in their power to make the fair a success by talking and working for the enterprises in season and out of season, according to the Canby Tribune's chronicling of the event. Another early fair booster, Professor Theodore Gary, went even further. Mr. Gary advised everyone to boot up, and if we hear anyone talking against the fair, to take him out and hang him or something to that effect, the newspaper noted. His remarks were timely and well-received. Well, no hangings were recorded, but the work on the new fairgrounds came together splendidly. Out of the Waite family's rich farm and forest grew barns, arenas, stadiums, and outbuildings, some of which still stand to this day. Unlike the 1907 fair, which had been headlined by a gaudy carnival from out of town, which included a mask ball, Mardi Gras, freak show, and family feud-style contests, the centerpiece of the Canby Fair would be its sparkling new horse racing track. The half-mile racetrack has been placed in order during the past few days and is pronounced by experts to be one of the finest tracks in the state the Oregonian declared. WH Council is directing the greater steamroller and sprinkler at the fairgrounds, and the racetrack will be in first-class condition. Cash prizes of up to $1,000 were awarded to the fastest horses thanks to liberal contributions from Portland businessmen and across the state. Not that it was all about speed. Slow trotting was also a popular form of racing entertainment in those days, and several were scheduled for the three-day event. A five-mile relay race for pupils of the local schools was also considered an interesting feature. Other prizes would be given to top show performers for horses, cattle, sheep, swine, poultry, vegetables, fruit, and all kinds of farm products. Awards will be given for ladies' textile products, bread, cakes, pies, preserved fruits, etc., the Oregonian said. Fifty special prizes will be awarded for the best of exhibits of every kind of farm, garden, or horticultural product.
The most popular day was Friday, which had been designated Oregon City Day, something that had also been done at the 1907 fair. According to an earlier article, the entire town promises to pay a Cambia visit and enjoy the raptures of country life for a day. Well, that might have been an exaggeration, but not by much. 3,000 souls visited the Clackamas County Fair that day, and almost a third of them from Oregon City, which in those days had a population of just north of 4,000. There were so many folks from Oregon City, a special train was on hand just to take them home at the end of the night. The attendance was far greater than was anticipated by the fair officials, a newspaper later recorded, and was due partly to the perfect weather and in no small measure to the fact that nearly 1,000 people came from the county seat to make a boost for the old Calacamas and her fine products that filled the big pavilion. The display of products of the soil were amazing in variety and quality, though not so numerous as the previous year due to a late frost. Nevertheless, the mammoth vegetables and luscious fruits grown by the family farms that thickly encircled the community and its fairgrounds attracted wide attention. The horse races, though, were widely considered to have been far superior to the previous years. There were more and better horses in competition, nearly 500 in number, and the crowds poured in from all directions to see them pound the dirt. The fair wrapped up with an exhibition baseball game with a hometown team hosting the Spantons from Portland. With one of the night boys on the mound and pitching a no-hitter, the Canby Bats got hot and spanked the visitors 16 to nothing. <laughs> That's what I call an old-fashioned thrashing. The fair had found its permanent home, and in the rich Canby soil, it was prepared to grow and grow. That, however, is a story for next time on Canby Then. Well, friends, as always, thank you for listening. I'm James Walton. Have a great day. Hey, I'm AJ. I'm your uh, local Oddmos franchise owner. I'm Mike, co-founder of Oddmos. And we're the hosts of The Odd Pod, a podcast about life in the pizza industry. We're going to have on some franchisees. We're going to have some different vendors on. We're going to get a snapshot of what goes on behind the scenes in the, the pizza world. Don't forget to tell them about the sports. They're sports. And the crazy wacky pizza that we have every Wednesday that we create. And we also have a special guest every week as well. And I'm Gage, Odd Pod Senior Sports Analyst. Gage, who gave you that title? Me. Oh, boy. Find us on Spotify and Apple Music and the Podbean. Now Hear This Can Be is produced by me, Tyler Clausen. Our content director and star reporter is Tyler Frankie. And of course, our show is edited by Cameron Clausen. We also feature the vocal talents of Joy Struby and James Walden. So a round of applause to them. The song that you're hearing right now is Can Be by singer-songwriter Olivia Harms, used with her permission. To find more work from her, you can visit her website, olivia13.com. Now Hear This Can Be is dedicated to preserving independent local journalism and redefining local news with our fun, fresh, and energetic brand of storytelling. Our sincere thanks to our local sponsors who make this show possible. Please show your appreciation by supporting the small businesses who support us. The production of Now Hear This Studios, Canby's locally owned, full-service audio, video, and media production company. Our mission is to produce the best content in the universe and we'd love to help you do it. Find us online at nhtstudios.com.
Um, I will take a motion to adjourn. I just moved it. I didn't even ask for it, though. (laughs)